what I've noticed about race in the office and in the workplace, it really depends on culture. It depends on history. It depends on so many other dynamics. So I wanted to, to understand a bit about your experiences in Japan. Just existing was already enough different. Um, I have locks in my hair, so my, my hairstyles are very calm. Like I just calmed everything down because I felt like I just stuck out so much. I remember my general manager at the time, a wonderful woman from the Netherlands. Um, I'm not sure if she sensed it or she just had a conversation. I'm not quite sure where where it came from, but I remember she made a comment and she said, we hired you because you're you and we, we want you just to be yourself. I kind of relaxed a little bit. You know, I kind of felt like the shackles that I didn't know were, were there kind of came off and I and I just became myself again. You know, I, I wore the, the polka dots and the colors and I'll be the only person wearing yellow in a sea of navy blue. My name is Catherine Ann Byam and I'm your host. What's your purpose and how does it integrate with sustaining life itself? For some of us, this question is a deep ache that we spend a lifetime trying to find, perhaps shifting direction as we learn and grow from one path to another. For many of us, our children give us a clear definition. Providing for them becomes our reason for being. For others, it's about enjoying the present moment, ever so fleeting and ever so beautiful. For still others, it can be financial, status, contribution or impact. In this podcast, my guest and I will share with you tips, ideas, and methods on how to build a career that integrates with who you are and the life you want to lead. We will explore the social foundation on which to build your transition and an ecological ceiling above which we need not climb so that we live not just for ourselves, but for our collective ability to thrive. Welcome to the Purpose Driven Career Podcast, Do What Matters. Dr. Ashley Dash inspires action through her lived experiences in person and online as a profitable resume expert. She often shares her most significant life challenges, including how she went from being an unemployed college graduate to landing a 100K plus a year job in human resource with Mercedes-Benz, or revealing how years later she restarted her life after facing foreclosure and unemployment, shifting back to six figures with an international move to Japan. With a doctorate in strategic leadership and a passion for helping corporate business professionals increase their confidence, create a six-figure career brand, and get unstuck at work, she knows when you change your resume, you can change your life. Ashley, welcome to Do What Matters, the Career Pivot to Purpose podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> really wonderful to have you. You visited my Courageous Career Club, maybe I think it was a year ago or so. And at that time, we discussed dealing with workplace hit. And it's mm -hmm. one of the top interviews, according to my members. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that and, and oh. for sharing your journey. Um, thanks for that. That's <laughs> exciting. Yeah. And today I want to talk about, about DEI, but from, from a different perspective, from, from your perspective as a migrant to Japan and the journey this has been for you. Because because what, what I've kind of noticed about race in the office and in the workplace, it really depends on culture. It depends on history. It depends on so many other sort of um, dynamics that you experience it differently. You experience being an other differently depending on on the circumstance. So I wanted to to understand a bit about your experiences in Japan from a DEI perspective? Oh my gosh, where do you want me to start? <laughs> there have been so many experiences, opportunities, challenges, obviously growth. 
there's just been, so I guess I will start with my background in terms of where I'm from and kind of we'll segue, we'll start there. So I am African-American. However, I was born in the United Kingdom um, in the UK, um, but I was raised American and I traveled um, mostly in the United States, a couple of international international roles for, for business meetings, but not for working. And then getting the opportunity to move to Japan to interview and move and relocate here um, was obviously life-changing. It was amazing. However, I wasn't prepared for all of the, I'll call it diversity opportunities that I would face as a woman, um, as a U.S. citizen, as, you know, a Black woman or African-American woman. Um, just, just every, every, almost everything you can think of, I've kind of hit around the culture, spirituality, gender, like every single thing you can imagine. I kind of feel like I've experienced here in Japan, um, conversations around privilege because in the United States, I don't necessarily feel privileged, um, sometimes, you know, being, um, you know, black being raised in the South, right. And being a black woman, but then moving to Japan and understanding the power of, you say, a U.S. passport, being a native English speaker, just things you just never, I, I think I took a lot of things for granted. And I just, I was just exposed to so many different levels and kinds and types of diversity that it was absolutely unreal. I didn't realize in America that we're very free. We're very just open <laughs> um, culturally which you don't know because everyone is in your culture. And then you move to a different culture, which is diametrically opposite, very conservative, very um, reserved, <laughs> very um, polite to the to the extreme in which you don't actually know if you're actually in agreement in a meeting. Um, so lots of things came up with, with moving to Japan. It's been amazing, but I want to say one of the largest learning experiences to date in my entire life. No, I can imagine that. And what what things have you had to adjust? Like what things have you felt like you you could no longer do? You know what? There was a lot of things initially I felt that I could not do. Um, I started dressing more conservatively. I started dressing in darker colors. So everyone here wears like gray, navy, blue, black. It's very like monotone. So I kind of started dressing like in those colors, like a lot of things that made me, me, right? American and happy. I'm a happy person, if you guys can't tell. You know, pretty fun. Um, I wear flowers and polka dots and, and, and things like that. I stopped because I felt like just existing was already enough, you know, different. Um, I have locks in my hair. So my, my hairstyles are very calm. Like I just calmed everything down because I felt like I just took out so much. And um, I remember my general manager at the time, a wonderful woman um, from the Netherlands, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I'm not sure if she sensed it or she just had a conversation. I'm not quite sure where, where it came from. But I remember she made a comment and she said, we hired you because you're you and we, we want you just to be yourself. And I remember after that comment, I kind of relaxed a little bit. You know, I kind of felt like the shackles that I didn't know were, were there kind of came off and I and I just became myself again. You know, I, I wore the, the polka dots and the colors and I'll be the only person wearing yellow in a sea of navy blue. <laughs> and sometimes it, it was 
isolating and other times you have to learn how to balance. So sometimes I would wear like the fun colors and other times I would wear like a work uniform and, and all of the, my Japanese colleagues noticed like, oh, that's nice. Right. So it, it gave us a, a chance for commonality. So, so many things um, from clothing, uh, my re- rate of speech has probably been the most significant challenge. It, yeah. it was challenging to be honest in the United States, I've always been a person that speaks very quickly, even for native English speakers to then move into a foreign country where people are translating in in your in their heads, understanding you um, very complex topics. You know, some of the work topics we were discussing were taxes and payroll and multiple multiple countries and expatriate management. They weren't easy topics, um, to say the least. So learning how to communicate effectively for a global audience, to be honest, is something I still, I'm going to say I struggle with. I have to focus. I have to think about it. After those meetings, I will be tired. Don't talk to me. (laughs) Just let me decompress. So I think communication has been the most challenging, one of the most challenging things that I've I've had to personally work on um, at work. That's really important what you said there about about communication. And I think that's probably one of the the biggest topics in the whole DEI space because it it combines a couple of things. It combines being sort of empathic and and sort of understanding what the other person's going through, you know, um even if you know, even if the context was reversed, right? and you're you're in the u s perhaps, and you know you have someone there from Russia or from from Poland right. or something like this, you know, you always have this this time gap perhaps where that person is you know processing or or just the way you literally say something is is interpreted completely different in that other language you know so so there's so much to to language and then there's the other side of it is is the curiosity right so like Mm -hmm. you have to have noticed that something is different in order to probe it and to ask questions about it but if you don't if you're not paying attention to the differences and wondering why something is the way that it is, you don't get to explore what it means. And then you don't get to challenge your own sort of belief systems, right? So right. it's 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 such a rich space for me. Like I'm I, I love this kind of stories. And this is one of the reasons, you know, I'm I am going to start working on my next book, which is designed by diversity and built by inclusion. And I'd love you to be a part of that. But uh, but that's another topic. <laughs> Right. So on that point, I just want to give an example. I didn't realize Americans were so casual in our speech. Mm. So we use a lot of lingo, a lot of phrases that mean other things. But when you you say it directly or you try to translate it directly, it makes absolutely no sense. And one of those examples that I use is cool beans, right? I use the phrase cool beans. And all of my coworkers look at me like, what are you talking? You're like, thank God, right? That body language and facial expressions are universal. You all, no matter what country you're from, everyone knows the, the face of confusion or questions, right? Yeah. And trying, and then I realized, so I would have to try to explain cool beans, but then how do you explain that, right? What's the reference point? How do you even begin those conversations? So then I realized that there was a lot of phrases and beliefs to your point that I just took for granted, like I inherited, I, I didn't actually have the tools to know how to, how to explain cool beans. Cause then I'll use another word like, well, it means awesome, but the awesome isn't typically, you know, a, a generally global English term. So it actually forced me 
to be a better communicator because I had to be very specific in terms of translation. Like, is this the right term in the tone that I want to convey and express? Hence, while I was tired, a lot of times leaving, I was like, I'm not doing a lot of physically demanding work, but just trying to make sure everyone understands what I'm saying and I'm clearly understanding what they're saying was really, I just, I don't think it's a conversation. No one prepared me for that conversation, to be honest. No one talks about global English (laughs) when they talk (laughs) about diversity. I've never heard, I've seen one LinkedIn post one time around native English speakers and other foreign languages, and that's it. But global English is its own topic. It deserves its own chapter in your book or another book. It's very interesting just understanding that space. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we had a very, a very recent and, you know, potentially really good example when when the announcement came out last week about the queen being ill. When they reported it, they said that she was resting comfortably. And my partner was like, he's French. So he was like, well, she's fine. Like, why is everyone getting acting as if she's she's already passed? Like, she's fine. They said she's resting comfortably. And I, I had to point out to him that if she's still at home and the doctors are concerned and they haven't taken her to the hospital, she's probably not fine. But but right. from the language, from the language that we use in the UK is like you'd never know that there's a crisis happening because mm-hmm. she's resting comfortably. Um, you know, and, and this kind of stuff is it, it happens all the time, right? That people get lost because they don't understand nuances of the culture right. and the and, and how understated sometimes the UK can be so that was that was also really interesting so you're right yes not just the UK (laughs) service announcement not just the UK (laughs) so um I'm going to to move to another topic of interest Mm -hmm. to me and then definitely to the people listening to us today I'm keen for you to share your backstory and how you came to be an HR leader and and how you got from from where you were in terms of you know your your background etc to to this place if you can tell me a little bit about that sure I have I like to say a horrible HR story (laughs) um and I say that laughingly because I actually never wanted to be in human resources I took the classes in college and I just was not interested at all It, it sounded very boring I was the case studies I was just not interested so I was actually, my background is business, business administration with a concentration in marketing. So I was doing research and data analysis and my internships. My first job was sales analysis and reporting. And then I went back for, to school for my master's in business administration. I graduated and then I started interviewing for other positions because obviously I got this degree. Let's put it to use. And I applied for finance positions and a, co- a couple of other reporting positions. And I did not get those positions. And I also interviewed for a recruitment position, recruiter. And it was interesting because my boss would be in a different part of the country and I would have this remote team. I, I would sit in a different team. It was very, it was everything about this role was very interesting. And I didn't think I'd get be hired because I did not have a background in human resources. I just didn't. And what I've heard or what I've learned over years is in order, it's very hard to break into HR. That's been the very like the reoccurring theme that I've heard. But I have no experience because the first HR job I applied for, I actually got. And in that role, I was recruiting for both um, manufacturing positions and office positions. I fell in love with human resources. To be honest, I fell in love with the practical part of it because you don't get to do that in school. 
the meeting people, the understanding, the having conversations with new candidates, working with the hiring managers, um, going to career fairs for a time. I was a happy career fair lady. Like who doesn't want to fly around the country and talk to new college graduates who are excited to work? Um, so I kind of got bitten by the HR bug on accident. And I've been in HR ever since, to be honest, in different roles. But that's actually how I started. I want to ask something that's potentially controversial. I have this thing in my head that a lot of us as Black women we work in in spaces or we talk to subjects relating to HR and DEI, probably because we feel as out of all the categories we could find at work, we probably feel the most oppressed um, by the coincidence of discrimination that happens mm-hmm. both by race, the intersectionality of race and of gender. And when I look at the people I follow on LinkedIn, for example, who are strong Black women, they tend to be all advocates for DEI and not necessarily broader sustainability topics. And I wonder why, I wonder why this is. I wonder if it's even a realistic thing that I'm saying, or if it's just my lens and my my own eyes that are telling me that most of the outspoken Black women that I see are always talking about DEI and always in the HR space. What is your feeling about that? Is is there any truth to that? Is is there something that that might be drawing us toward this subject? What are your thoughts? On that particular topic, um, I actually have two comments. I, I think sometimes we are a, a product of who of what we're interested in, right? So I think if you're interested in the DEI subject and you are a Black woman, it would make sense that you follow Black women interested in DEI conversations. I don't think those are the only advocates. I don't think those are the only people having those conversations. I think you're just more sensitive to the topic as I am. I'm I'm connected to a, a lot of HR professionals and a lot of career people. So I get to see a lot more conversations around work heard and resumes and interviews. And it's just not Black women, but there is a significant pop, you know, number in that space. So I think part of it is just population, like what your interest level is, because it just, it's just a pro- I think you're a product of your environment. All of my positions, not all, but most, most of my positions have been in the automotive space. So for most of my career, I've been surrounded by white men and it took, um, I did have a couple supervisors. It took a while to get a couple supervisors that were non-white, but I didn't have any problems or issues. However, with that comment being said, I do remember very early in my career, um, there was a communication challenge around, specifically around myself as a black woman. And I don't know if it was, if it was a confidence thing or I was coming across arrogant. It was something in the, in the tone, right. That just didn't sit well. And it was noted uh, in, in terms of conversation and brought to my attention. And I remember another human resources professional. She's also a black woman. She was higher up than me. You know, she had been in the game for years. She said, it's very interesting that every Black woman performance evaluation has has a particular note around tone. Mm. I was like, ooh, like, that's interesting because in HR, you see, you see everything, you hear everything. And at the time, I was too new, too green to really understand what that meant or the implications of that. Now I know that's a DEI topic. Like, oh, we, we communicate differently. We, we need to figure out what that is because obviously- there was a communicate, there was a D, I call it a DEI gap, right? Mm. On both sides. The, mm. Black women didn't know as a collective that was happening and management didn't know that each Black woman was receiving the same type of information. So obviously there was something happening in the organization as a whole. Not saying that the organization is horrible or racist, it's just, it's just facts of information. So I think 
there are hidden gems, you know, in every organization, regardless of where you are, that you just have to take note of or be privy to. And I don't think if you're in the majority, you really pay attention or notice those those nuances. And I think if you are at the point of intersectionality around DEI topics, you you just happen to know that as a Black woman, like, of course, I noticed because it happened to me. So mm-hmm. I, because of my experience, right, I noticed those things. So I could be that, you know, advocate on, on LinkedIn talking about DEI topics, right? But if you talk to, you know, a person, you know, LGBT plus community, same thing, Asian, like, you know, it just depends on that conversation. No, that's that's a fair point. That's a really fair comment. I want to know a little bit about the sort of challenges you faced in growing your career. So what what has sort of been the most difficult part of becoming uh, a senior professional in, in your space? And possibly what were the most successful and, and easy elements? So I think one of the most significant challenges I faced that no one prepared me for was isolation. Mm-hmm. I often felt lonely. I was often the only in the room and the only came up in a variety of ways, which is why I think diversity conversations are so important. So obviously many times I was only woman in the automotive space. I was only woman in the room or I was the only black person or black woman in the room. I started my career right out of college and I was giving reports to like the vice president of sales. So many times I was the youngest person in the room. So I didn't quite understand everyone else's. We didn't have the same reference points. Jokes were going over my head because I was born in a different times time era. Um, so that was very challenging and it took a while. And I was, in my eyes, I was more educated than my experience. Most of my career wasn't until I think moving to Japan where my years of experience and my education finally matched for a very long time. I was more educated than my experience portrayed. So that left some confusing conversations for managers in terms of how to, where did I fit and how did, how, how does, how do you have a career conversation with her? Obviously she's, she's brilliant, right? But she doesn't have XYZ experience because she just hasn't been on earth, right? She hasn't been working long enough to experience some of these things. So I think some of those challenges um, I experienced and I experienced them by myself because there was really no one else at my level or in my role doing that. I had like one or two peers in other industries and we kind of would commiserate together, you know, as black women. But for the most part, I was actually surpassing, um, I can't even say my peers, but people who were older than me, um, employees that I, that had been at the organization longer than me, I was surpassing them. And it was very interesting how that was happening. I know now it was happening, but at the time it was, it, it felt very lonely. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I don't think there's there's no conversation around, which is why we kind of have those work hurt conversations, because who do you go to when you're by yourself? Mm-hmm. Right. And if you do go to a mentor, they're not going to get all the nuances because they don't look like you. They don't talk like you. Right. Like they're going to miss some cultural differences. Right. Um, so that could be very isolating. And I'll say the controversial topic that I, I often say and I've expressed privately and I just started kind of talking about it publicly is in terms of how I navigated my career is I decided that I was going to treat my career like a white man, right? Because what was happening was I was at work and 
on the weekends, and everyone goes home, you know, has great plans. And on Mondays, everybody asks, how was your weekend? And then you would hear these stories from, I, I would hear these stories from my white colleagues and they were totally different. <laughs> it's completely different than what I was doing on the weekend. And I couldn't figure out how are you able to do this? How are you able to afford <laughs> to do some of the things you guys were doing on the weekends? And um, if we have time, we'll come back to that story later. But I just realized that the most successful people at my organization were all white men. So then I just started asking them questions about themselves. Like, how did you do this? How, why are you here? How long have you been working with? Like, I would just interview them, right? About themselves. At the time, I didn't know that's what I was doing, but I wanted information because you guys are doing something that I'm not doing. And I want to know the secret kind of keys, right? With the ingredients. And then I started learning some of the things that for, for them was common knowledge that was not common knowledge for myself or my peers. So then I started crafting my career. So, oh, okay, I need to do that. I need to do that. I need to do that. And actually Japan is actually a result of that um, conversation that started 2010, so 12 years ago. Most of my white colleagues and, and, and directors and successful guys all had international assignments. They all, every almost every single one of them had been overseas for a period of time and then came back. So I remember writing that down, you know, on my mental calendar. Said, okay, bucket list item professionally. I need to work overseas. That's how, that's how you become successful. So I had this list of things that I have kind of interviewed white men on, and I built my career around that, which is why it looks like I'm doing crazy things all the time because I'm I'm looking I'm filling these experience gaps um, that I think are important from what I've learned from them. No, that's really powerful and a very good technique. I mean, uh, I was thinking about this very conversation this topic because I had a research piece to write this week and one of the topics was around funding for women and you know how deplorable the funding situation is for women in general and I was curious about why is it that those two percent of women who get funded why do they get funded right and one of the things is is linked to to that point that you just made like what are the men doing? Okay, so can we do some of what they're doing, right? Um, it's 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 one part of it. It's probably not all of it, but but it's right. one of the things. And and there was some other follow up research on that that I found super interesting, which was that the women who were funded they tend to, they tended to be like seventy percent more successful than the average male being funded, <laughs> which is super fascinating. So so perhaps the the criteria and okay I haven't done the research but perhaps the criteria for for women is really tough but once they've crossed it they're more likely to be successful so there's something in that right there's there's something powerful in that that women could use right and I think it's a really good way to approach it it's like if you go and you you dig and you find the the sort of the sort of key ingredients there's no there's no um there's nothing stopping you from from feeding that through into the way that you execute what you're doing this is true but I need to put on my HR hat right from years ago um in recruitment and it's very interesting in how gender plays up a point in applications right because let's say on a on a job application there's seven requirements right if a man hits three or four he's going to apply for the role Mm-hmm. Right. Like he's going to submit his application and we're going to see it in the system. And my experience, I can't speak for it today, but my experience in the past has been if the woman doesn't have seven out of seven, she will not apply. She could have five of seven. She doesn't have all seven requirements. She will not apply for the role. 
So that's actually how I got into the career space because the question people kept asking me was, actually, how are you getting these jobs? And I would respond, I'm applying. <laughs> right? I would apply for roles. I had no HR experience. I still applied for the job, <laughs> right? That's interesting because I suspect that's also happening with women in funding, that they're not right. applying. And, <laughs> now, I don't think it's everyone else. Let's be clear. I know there's yeah. lots of women who, who are applying and, and they're also, they are getting rejected. But there has been significant studies and research that shows that that men just they they see themselves more highly than women see themselves view, view themselves. So they just apply for positions at a different rate and experience than than many women. Not say all women, but, but many women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's powerful stuff, and I I think it's. It's good that we're having the conversation and I hope that this is helping someone who's listening out there. (laughs) What in your experience are organizations beginning to get right on this whole diversity, equity and inclusion topic? So I think we're getting away from tokenism, right? I think organizations are realizing that that is not positive, that is not good for anyone. And I think the the former, I'll say tokens, right? The, the people who have been in those roles are also kind of saying, hey, um, you're setting me up for failure. Hey, this this isn't working. And people are kind of seeing through. So I hate to use the word, this word, because I feel like it's overused right now, but I feel like some companies are trying to be more authentic, be more authentic right? They're trying to be like, okay, we, we obviously need metrics, right? We have to track it. But putting someone who's not qualified in a role just because they're of the color of their skin or their gender or whatever their diverse characteristic is, is not working, right? So, so how do we do this? So the conversations that I'm more excited about are more about inclusivity, right? Because sometimes you see the word diversity in people's eyes roll, right? Because people have defined it, overdefined it, redefined it, right? And sometimes it loses its power. When you talk about inclusion, right? Inclusion is really more about removing barriers, right? Not focusing on a particular metric. So I think when we talk about DEI, I get excited around, okay, how do we remove barriers for everyone, right? Because it's easy for men, right? To feel like they're being isolated. And I feel like it's very, it doesn't make sense for people to ignore the fact that if someone's in power and you're removing their power, they wouldn't feel frustrated or upset or angry, that that is a natural human emotion, right? <laughs> so I think when we talk about inclusivity, it's easier to have conversations and engage men in those conversations because I'm not taking anything away from you, right? I'm not saying you can't have this job because you're not a woman, right? And men have experienced that in this in these DEI conversations, we're saying, hey, we're just removing the barriers so that other people can apply too. And if you're still the most qualified, right, great, right? So we're doing those types of conversations. So inclusion to me is very exciting. What are the sort of biggest things that you see you see coming upstream that's going to sort of help us all um, from your experiences and from your research and, and the data that you've been looking at? To be honest, I feel like this younger generation, they're blowing up systems. Like they're doing crazy things. And I love it. Um, It's been, it's challenged me because I grew up in a certain way, right? I I grew up, you know, you can't wear certain things. You can't say certain things. You can't, right? But I was always like on the edge. Like I was always like, this, this doesn't make sense, but I need my job, right? So (laughs) I've kind of conformed, but still on the cusp. And this new generation, this younger generation in regards to age, they do not care. They're saying, I'm not coming to work. If you can't work remotely, I'm 
I'm not, I'll quit, right? They are quitting without two week notices. They are going on strike. They, it's like, they're just, they're challenging everything. And I'm not saying that all of it is wonderful, but a lot of good things, a lot of good conversations are being forced on executives that they probably weren't prepared for. And COVID absolutely did not help, right? Yeah. When most of the world discovered, oh, we can actually still function from a corporate environment, right? Being in, in person is different, but from a corporate environment, oh, we can still do all of this stuff from home. Why do I have to come back into the office? It's been very, I've been kind of excited to be honest. Um, I, I love the younger generation. I, I'm team them right now. Like they, they are driving the future around work. Yeah, no, that's super great. And you know what? I've been I've been soaking up TikTok recently, just as I was promoting my book, right? And I recorded a few videos on each chapter of the book so I can start doing the promotion. And then I started, you know, posting it to TikTok, but also playing with TikTok myself. And mm -hmm. I was like, whoa, like there's so many kids who just on this platform being content creators, not necessarily influencers, but genuinely good content creators. And I realized, mm -hmm. like, hang on, this stuff is disrupting traditional learning and development, first of all, because yes. so many people are just going to it and getting their knowledge from it. Um, but it's also like it's a cultural movement. It's 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 like a voice. It's like this this huge space where people are being able to really share what their values and views are without mm. any sort of editing at all and and it's changing the game right it's 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 absolutely groundbreaking it is and it's scary i'm gonna say it's scary for me and i'm not even like you know in like the older like being a boomer you know generation because it's to me sometimes i my eyes grow wide i'm like they really said that publicly right <laughs> cuz yeah. there's some things that i would say or think or have conversations with that i would not put on tiktok right that i would not put on linkedin yes. i would not put on facebook um so it's been challenging me around you know my own authenticity and vulnerability and what that looks like like some things i have to be honest I, I was raised, you know, professional, professionally old school. So some things I'm just not going to do. Like, I just can't do it. It's just, it's just not for me. And that's okay. But I think the point is, like you're saying, it's culturally groundbreaking. It's forcing conversations that are long overdue. Yeah, it's it's really, really something that I, I too embrace. It's, it's good. It's good for us. <laughs> so I want to move now to something very important which is the profitable mm -hmm. resume. So you created this this great business, the profitable resume. Mm -hmm. And you know, we were talking just before we got on air about this journey to putting your resume out there and actually getting a call back. And yes. I I was sharing with you that I actually am on I'm on a journey right now. So I'm I'm a career coach too, and I'm actually on a journey to return to the world of of traditional work as I call it in quotations. <laughs> and I was surprised that I actually was getting callbacks. Like I, out of all the resumes that I've sent, which is about ten, I've had five calls, and that was a that was mind blowing for me because the last five years ago or, or before, it was not the case. Like I was not getting that sort of feedback, and and one of the things is because I built a profitable resume. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. Yes. Yeah, so, okay. I've been, I'll say like, I started as a resume writer in college. So even before I started my career, I've been in the resume business, so to speak. And over the years, you just see, to be honest, I've seen thousands of resumes at this point. I'm not at the millions, but definitely the thousands. 
and you just start noticing things. And then you having conversations with the people who have the paper in front of you, you start realizing things don't match. Like what you said in the interview was amazing, but that's not on this piece of paper, right? So I realized that there's a process to having a profitable resume. And one of the first things I learned was that your resume is a reflection of you when you're not in the room, but most people aren't confident in themselves, right? They don't have the right mindset and that's reflected in the resume. And that's one of the first things that I learned. So when I talk about profitable resume, that is just the one piece where we start because when I'm pretty sure when you were work, when you were looking for your job, let's say after, after grad, after you graduated, right? You don't have a lot of experience, right? You don't really have the same level of confidence that you have now, right? With all the years of experience, there's a certain level of, I'll say, tracking and metrics and understanding that you have that you just didn't have years ago because you didn't have the experience. And once I realized that many people didn't view themselves that way, a light bulb clicked in my brain. Like, oh, this is why you're not getting the job because you don't actually feel confident (laughs) in this experience. And so once I improve a person's confidence, the resume is a byproduct of that, right? Like the process for resume writing is actually pretty simple. It's the process of getting someone to believe in in themselves that's difficult, to know that they're amazing, to know that they have transferable skills that apply to multiple roles, to know that, you know, this experience can be tracked. There's metrics attached to it, to understand this information is important. I'm not going to keep going because I get excited, but you know, this is my space, right? So um, I just, I just know how life-changing resumes can be and have been for me. I've changed my life. This is my second dream job. This is my third, I'll call it crazy location. And it was all based on a resume, right? The resume was the first step. For one of my jobs, I don't think I applied. Yeah. Two of my jobs, several of my jobs. I don't think I applied for the job. I think I had a phone conversation with one of them. And I, and I think they found me, my resume online for another position, Right. But I just know that it's so important. It's so powerful. And people just, in my opinion, they don't know how life-changing it can be. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely bang on. I, I had the same experience. I had someone reach out to me and say, look, you know, I'm recruiting for this role. It's closed now, but I'd love you to apply <laughs> um, because clearly they weren't finding the people that they wanted and they found my resume. They found my CV on LinkedIn, basically, right. um, and just decided to reach out. Right. And I'm, I'm still in that process now. So that that does count for something. And I guess this speaks to the point about building your personal brand. Yeah. So branding is it's it's, it's a buzzword. It's been a buzzword for years. Um, career brand. I've been doing this, I don't know, five years now, six years. I'm not sure. But before when I was started doing it, career branding wasn't a term yet, right? It was all about like personal branding or professional branding. Career branding, the way I define it is a combination of both. It's your personal and your professional brand together equals your career brand, right? So personal is who you are. So how you show up in the world, if you're a happy person, if you're a morning person, if you're, you know, all those things that your personality, right? That typically does not change. And then professionally, that's what you do at work, right? So that's kind of like how you show up. Those items together equal your career brand, right? And my job for every single person that I interact with is to help them create a six-figure career brand, right? Help you see how your natural talents and abilities, right? Who you are as a person can help you get your dream job and make six figures and what you've done professionally, right? How to leverage that experience 
into different roles and opportunities so that it makes sense. So again, that you can make six figures because there's intangibles around about people, right? And there's things that, of course, technical skills. Um, and once you learn that, once you identify that, it's it's amazing. What advice would you give to my listeners who are thinking about making a transition right now? Is this the right time to make a transition? Would you say that the job market is in, in a good place? And what, what should they be looking for? I give the worst advice when people ask me these questions because I teach from a completely different perspective. I, I don't really care about the job market, right? Because I'm not competing against the job market. I am the best person for the role. I don't care about a candidate pool, <laughs> like all the things that you're supposed to care about. That's not what I teach um, from. Now, my my clients know we, we have those discussions. That's Those are after effects, right? You are the best person for the job, which means in any market, right? You will be the best person from the job. There are always people hiring. When I started looking for jobs, I looked for jobs during the Great Recession. So if you've ever heard me speak before, I always say I'm a recession baby, right? So I've gotten promotions. In the Great Recession of 2010, I bought a house when they said you weren't supposed to be able to buy houses. So I don't really think about things like that, to be perfectly honest. I teach my clients to apply from a position of power. And my preference would actually be they not apply, they attract. But that's a whole separate conversation um, because most job posts, most jobs aren't actually posted, to be frank. Right. So that's a, a totally different tangent that we don't have time to go down. It's just... What I tell people to do is understand what you want to do and be specific. Now, that's what I do. Get really clear on what you want to do. Get clear on where you want to work and get clear on how much money you want to make. Um, I actually advise my clients to write their own job description, like on a piece of paper, write down a job description of what you want, right? Where would you work? How many times did you go into the office? What kind of company would it be? Would it be a boutique or a large company? Like go through the paces. How much money would you make? What type of hiring manager would you work for? What would your job responsibility be? What would job responsibilities be? How, what percentage, you know, or would you be doing those things? Like write your own job description and then see if that exists in the marketplace, right? Then see what kind of opportunities and conversations come because most of the times I decide what I want to do and then I go find it. I don't just apply just to apply. As we start looking at what's what's changing in the wider world and the whole sustainability conversation and this 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 podcast as well as my other podcast, I always try to integrate the sustainability transition into everything. Do you feel as if a candidate today needs to be well-versed in sort of the big picture of what's happening on our planet. What are, what are your thoughts on that? I would say definitely. They, they would definitely need to be connected, but it depends on the values of the person, the hiring manager and the company. I have to be honest, I don't have that much experience, let's say in green environment, like energy. Like I just... I know it exists. I know it's important, right, to save the planet. But I personally don't have, let's say, an attachment to it. So when I'm in the automotive space, obviously we talk about, you know, zero waste. You know, we talk about fuel efficiency and hydrogen, you know, batteries and, you know, all types of things, right? So I understand it, but I don't have a connection to it. But I'm also in the HR space. Right. So my sustainability is more connected to people. Right. So for me, sustainability was completely different. It's more like 
compassion, like compassion to human resources, right? How do you let someone go and support them in the process, right? Because that could be someone's life change, life changing for someone, right? So I think defining what sustainability means in terms of the industry and then of course the function you're in really makes the biggest difference because, you know, if I talk to one of my friends, she's gonna talk about fast fashion, right? And she, she, you know, she hates, you know, all of these, you know, one and done, you know, uh, these outlets, right? These stores that are making millions of dollars, but are destroying the planet. So it just depends on what sustainability means and what it looks like to the person. Great advice. How can my listeners connect and find you? They can find me on Facebook. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. I'm Dr. Ashley Dash. I would say that's D-R. I'm Ashley, A-S-H-L-E-Y Dash. Actually the word, not the hyphen. I get that a lot. So D-A-S-H. But there are lots of people that have questions around the recession. And just because, you know, I maybe I found it super easy, you know, several years ago, doesn't mean that everyone is in that space. So I am um, putting together a how to resume, excuse me, how to recession proof your resume. Um, I think that's a conversation that um, is happening right now. People kind of just want some information and support. So I walked them through what I did, right? Like, this is how you survive a recession. This is how you get promoted during recession. And people can access that at profitableresume.com slash guide. Right. It's um, a free resource. You know, you put your name and your email address in there and then you'll get the guide. Um, I'm actually releasing it this week, this weekend. Um, so it'll be really exciting to to really to be honest, to help people. I feel like jobs and careers are the biggest part of people's lives. And I'm so excited when I see someone living their best life because they changed their job or they got more money or, you know, they're doing what they love. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing all these brilliant nuggets of wisdom. Looking forward to engaging again with you in the future. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. This episode was brought to you today by the Courageous Career Club. Have you picked up your own copy of Do What Matters, the Purpose Driven Career Transition Guidebook? To find out how you can get your copy, as well as resources that go alongside it, visit my website, www.katherineannbyam.com or engage with me on the socials. I'm looking forward to hearing from you.